Turn with me in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2, Paul's letter to the Philippians, the second chapter. We're going to read those very familiar words of verses 1 through 11. We're going to read them somewhat out of context. The context that we so often miss about this hymn of praise concerning Jesus Christ is the call to, to our own service to one another. That Paul is saying we ought to have a, a mind like this. We ought to live our lives in this way. And then he sets Jesus as our standard. What did Jesus do? He gave himself in service, in humble adoration of God and in service to his people. And now, says Paul, live the same way. Our concern, however, is the uh, coming of the Son of God in the flesh. We're at Article 19 in the Belgian Confession, which deals with the two natures of Jesus Christ. Uh, And so we're concerned uh, about that hymn, about what we actually sang. It was the number 290, that song that was difficult to sing but had a lovely melody. It was a versification of this passage. Uh, And that's the concern we have, the coming of Christ in the flesh. So uh, we'll begin at verse 1 in Philippians chapter 2. We'll read to verse 11. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility. Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Thus far the reading of God's holy and inspired word. We're going to turn then in our forms and prayers books to page 172, 172. Again, we're in that section of the, the confession that deals with Christology, with the doctrines concerning Jesus Christ. We have begun to see something of this already in the Incarnation, Article 18. And now in Article 19, we continue that conversation uh, in terms of the two natures of Christ. And in Article 19 of the Belgian Confession, the church is taught to confess this. We believe that by being thus conceived, the person of the Son has been inseparably united and joined together with human nature in such a way that there are not two sons of God, nor two persons, but two natures united in a single person, with each nature retaining its own distinct properties. Thus his divine nature has always remained uncreated without beginning of days or end of life, filling heaven and earth. His human nature has not lost its properties, but continues to have those of a creature. It has a beginning of days. It is of of a finite nature and retains all that belongs to a real body. And even though he, by his resurrection, gave it immortality, that nonetheless did not change the reality of his human nature. 
For our salvation and resurrection depend also on the reality of his body. But these two natures are so united together in one person that they are not even separated by his death. So then when he, what, what he committed to his father when he died was a real human spirit which left his body. But meanwhile, his divine nature remained united with his human nature. Even when he was lying in the grave and his deity never ceased to be in him, just as it was in him when he was a little child, though for a while it did not show itself as such. These are the reasons why we confess him to be true God and true man. True God in order to conquer death by his power, and true man that he might die for us in the weakness of his flesh. This the church does believe. Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, our Lord, we have before us a matter that has some significance within the history of the church. The church has long had to defend and promote the foundational truths of who Jesus is. And not only has the church had to defend the truth of Jesus' divinity, that he was indeed the Son of God in the flesh against such people as Arius. Uh, maybe Arius is not familiar to, uh, to you, but Jehovah's Witnesses certainly are. They hold to the same position. Not only has the church had to defend against that heresy, it has also had to defend it against the denial of his humanity. Think of the Gnostics, and maybe you don't know the Gnostics, but you, I'm sure, know all about Star Wars and the movie Star Wars, The Force Be With You, that whole thing, it's very Gnostic. Uh, it's all about how uh, uh, we transcend, we leave this body. You think of, of the Jedi Knights when they are sort of graduated and they lose their body, but they're still in form, they're still in, in some spiritual form, in a better place. That's very much a Gnostic concept. Not only has the church had to defend ourselves against Aryans and against Gnostics, uh, we, we also have had to defend uh, the nature of the relationship or the, the character of the relationship bet, uh, between Christ's divinity and his humanity so that we say, yes, he is the Son of God, and yes, he is a true man, and then we have to also explain how that is possible within one person. We've had to explain and understand what it means that Jesus is indeed true God and true man. Does that mean that he is half God and half man? Is he fully man and only partly God? Is he essentially two overlapping people? These are the kinds of questions that have been raised in the history of the church. And it's so often the case these challenges arise when some teacher or other would say something from the pulpit in his classroom, in his writings about Jesus that just didn't sound quite right. And then a debate would ensue, and there would maybe be even a church council, and, and there would be some encoding of this truth, this new definition concerning who Jesus is within some document. And the church fathers would diligently study the Word of God to see how best to describe the truth of who Jesus is. So that, for example, at one point in the history of the church, there was quite a serious debate about one single Greek letter. Now, that little letter was the letter in English. It's the letter I. And it changed the, the meaning of a word from uh, 
the same substance, that's what the word uh, without the I meant, to of similar substance. Jesus is the same substance as the Father. That was one Greek word. He was of similar substance. That's the word with an I in it. And that was a, 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 another Greek word. And, and the church long came, came to, to blows over, over whether that I should be in the word or shouldn't be in the word. And, and, and when we read about those sorts of things, maybe some of us get excited. I'm the kind of person that gets excited about those sorts sort of things. Maybe you do too. But many of us, I think, think, really, what is this all about? These debates, these fine arguments, these carefully crafted words, is that really what the faith has come to? It's this boring, it's this lifeless, it's this empty spirituality where we argue about how many angels dance on the head of a pin. We don't tend in our day anymore to have as passionate a response to theological controversies as the early church experienced when they went through these significant moments of development. We're more inclined to say, look, if he's a good person, if she's a good person, let's just let it go. But you see, there's good reason for why the church fathers were so passionate about the teaching of Scripture, especially as it concerned the person and work of Jesus Christ. For they understood that not only did our eternal comfort depend on getting this right, our eternal salvation is dependent on this remarkable truth. This truth that is explained for us, at least in part, here in Article 19, of the Belgic Confession, a a teaching that holds before us the conclusions drawn by the church through its many challenges concerning the person and the natures of Jesus. That is, that we confess not that Jesus is two persons, not half a nature, a mixed nature, a bit of this, a bit of that, that he is instead one person with two natures, not overlapping, not intermingled, One person with a truly divine nature and a truly human nature. And both of these natures of our Lord are full. That is, they don't lose any of their properties. Jesus did not lay aside any of his divinity when he took up humanity. He wasn't like Achilles who was sort of half God, half man, or like Superman in our day, who is, who is almost divine. No, his divine nature has always remained uncreated, without beginning of days or end of life, as Hebrews 7 verse 3 teaches, filling all of heaven and earth. And his human nature had a beginning, a real body, including one that comes with, be- including all that rather comes with being human, except for of sin, of course. So that even after his resurrection, when he, was, when he gave his new body immortality, or when he gave his body immortality, he yet remained genuinely and truly human. That's what the confession holds before us this afternoon. That's the precious truth it wants us to lay hold of, that it wants us to grasp that Jesus is one person with two natures, a fully divine nature and a fully human nature. 
And it even helps us appreciate how challenging it can be for us to keep these things straight when it reminds us about how when Jesus died, his spirit went to the Father, but his divinity also remained with his body in the grave. See, that's where it gets a little bit wonky for us in our thoughts and in our minds. When we come to the cross of Calvary, when Jesus, the Son of God in the flesh, hangs upon the cross and cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Then we ask ourselves, how can it be possible that the Father should forsake His Son, His divine Son, without beginning, begotten from all of eternity? How is that possible? And can the Son of God in His divinity die upon the cross? And what then happened to His humanity? What happened to His body and His soul when He died? What happened in those three days when He was in the grave? We begin to wonder. We begin to ask questions. We find ourselves in catechism studying this. We find ourselves in a Bible studying, thinking about these things. And we try to, to make sense of the fact that, that Jesus is fully human, fully divine, and yet He's on the cross and in the grave. And, and our minds begin to struggle. How, how can it be? How can all of this make sense? And yet the Belgian Confession maintains for us and asserts for us that even in death, Jesus' divine nature and His human nature remain united. Yes, His Spirit went to heaven to be with the Father for those three days that He was in the tomb. And His body, yes, His body genuinely and really went into the the tomb. And His divinity remained with His soul, with His body, intimately connected with them fully human and fully divine. And indeed, we may even now rejoice in that knowledge, knowing that God in His sovereign power has elevated, has ascended into heaven in the flesh so that the very body of Jesus Christ remains at the Father's right hand even now, even as we worship Him in the presence of all of the saints of old, translated by the Holy Spirit into the very courtroom of God. We stand today in worship before the incarnate Jesus. He has human form. He still remains, as He was upon this earth, very tangible, very real, both God and man. And this is the clear biblical teaching we find on every page of Scripture. For not only does the Belgic Confession hold before us this precious and powerful truth, it does so in the light of what the Word of God teaches. After all, the confession would mean nothing if it were not consistent with the Word of God. The confession has to tell us what the Word of God says first. The confession is formed by the Word of God, not the other way around. We don't form our understanding of the Bible by what we believe in the confessions. No, what the Bible teaches forms what the confessions must teach. And while we might have a difficult time trying to wrap our minds around the fact that Jesus is fully divine and fully human, how can two natures exist within one person? While we may find ourselves struggling to grasp this as it's beyond our ability, it is more mysterious than we can begin to understand. It is the rather clear teaching of Scripture. After all, there are so many passages in God's Word that affirm for us the deity of Jesus Christ. For example, He is worshipped, as we discover in Matthew, in chapter 2, verse 2. Worshipped. 
by the, the wise men who came and said to Herod, we know there is a king that has been born and we have come to worship him. You worship no one but God. Even angels, if you try to worship them, will say, don't do that. You worship God, not us. It is God alone who is worshipped. And Jesus is called God in passages like John 20, verse 28. He's called the Son of God in Mark 1, verse 1. In Acts 7, verse 59, he's prayed to. Stephen prays to Jesus, who is the sinless one, we're told in 1 Peter 2, verse 22, who knows all things, John 21, verse 17, and who gives eternal life, John 10, verse 28. Indeed, Paul reminds us, does he not, in Colossians 2, verse 9, that in Jesus, the fullness of the deity dwells. Thus, the Word of God makes clear that Jesus is very much God, that He is more than man, that He is more than just what He appeared to be upon the earth as He was maligned and mistreated, as He was abused and ultimately crucified by His enemies, by those who hated Him. They did so because they did not know that He was God. They could not see past the veil of His humility. But He was most certainly the Son of God in the flesh. And he was really and genuinely in the flesh. The Word of God makes that clear too. He was called a man by those who knew him. Mark 15, verse 39. He's repeatedly, indeed his favorite way to refer to himself is as the Son of Man. Think of John 9 in the verses 35 through 37. We know that he was tempted as a man. Matthew 4, verse 1. We know that he grew in stature and in wisdom. Luke 2, verse 52. We also knew that know that he had flesh and bones, Luke 24, verse 39, that he ate, that he needed rest, that he needed physical sustenance. The Bible makes clear that Jesus was genuinely and truly a man with all of the finite nature that that involves. Jesus got tired. Jesus became weak. Jesus wept. Thus, the Bible makes clear on every page that Jesus is both God and man. And while that may boggle our minds, while we may not be able to grasp exactly how those things might fit together within the one person of our Lord, yet surely the first response we should have to this marvelous revelation of the incarnate Son of God is one of wonder and praise. Surely when we stop and hear this testimony of Scripture, when we hear that the Son of God, who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself, or emptied himself rather, by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men, then our hearts should marvel, our spirits should soar, and our mouths should be filled with praise. That the Creator should become a creature ought to bring forth from us adoration and exaltation. That the infinite should unite himself to the finite may be beyond our ability to understand, but it must not be beyond our ability to praise. Our minds not only struggle to comprehend the mechanics of such a confession, but they ought also to struggle to comprehend so humble, so loving, so wonderful a God and Savior as this. 
We should never imagine that we know fully and completely the glory of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, that we have exhausted the praise that is due His name, but that we should always marvel, behold our God, behold our Savior in the flesh, God and man. Truly, He is Emmanuel, God with us. But there is more to this revelation that ought to convict and convince us of the glory of God in Jesus Christ and of the comfort of the gospel. Indeed, there are many ways, there are millions of ways in which this revelation concerning the incarnate God, the two natures of Jesus Christ, ought to encourage and challenge and press us as a people in this life. One of the very important ways in the culture in which we live today One of the important responses that this teaching ought to encourage within us concerns what might be described as the diminishment and the disrespect of humanity by our culture. For we live in a world where the physical is so diminished and treated with such disrespect that it is regularly abused and cast aside as worthless and insignificant. Think about abortion and how abortion diminishes, disrespects, denies the value of the one in the womb. But also think about euthanasia. Think about how in a culture such as ours, we have medical assistance in dying because we disregard, because we, we rid ourselves of the trouble of the elderly. Invariably, when they do studies on the reasons for why people choose to die through medical assistance, the answer is not that they are in great pain. The answer is not that they are suffering so much they cannot live another day. The answer is, I don't want to be a burden to anyone. And wherever euthanasia is accepted, wherever this sort of thing is adopted, inevitably perfectly healthy, perfectly strong human beings choose nonetheless to be to be put to death because they just don't want to be a burden. They don't want to be a problem to anyone. The physical presence of grandma or grandpa becomes so irrelevant. Get rid of it. Throw it out with the trash. We don't want it anymore. That's the world in which we live. And we don't hardly, surely, have to explain how the physical is diminished and denied in the perversions, in the immorality, the sexual misconduct of our society that keeps telling us that what you do with your body isn't really relevant. Sleep with as many people as you want. Pursue as much sexual pleasure as you want. It doesn't really matter. The body is insignificant. It is the soul, it is the spirit that is really the thing of who you are. That's why drugs are promoted. That's why drugs are accepted within our culture and society as well. Because do with your body what you want. It's not really that important. And into this miserable, this despicable culture comes this teaching in Article 19 of the two natures of Jesus Christ. Divine and fully human. And into the dismal and depressing life of our world and culture comes this glorious good news that the Son of God took on the human nature becoming fully man. So that our appreciation and our 
understanding of God's commitment and value of our existence, body and soul, undoubtedly, is so elevated that we cannot but respect life. The life that Jesus came to save. The dignity of being a human must take into account that Jesus Christ took on flesh. So that even if our world may think little of our humanity, our God who has redeemed it and has united Himself to it, so that our flesh, our humanity, is now immortal at the very right hand of the Father on the throne of glory and of power, makes our view of what this physical reality is ultimately very different. We are much more than a mammal. And that makes our place and purpose in life so much more than evolutionary. It gives our humanity and our existence precious value and purposeful worth. We suddenly have a reason to live. Though not simply because Jesus took on flesh. It's not just an impressive act of love and humility that is enough to inspire in us some sense of wonder and worship as though that's enough to save us, to bring us out of the doldrums of our wicked immorality and depravity. Oh no, it is not just that Jesus amazes us with His humble condescension and His taking on our flesh. It is the reason He did that that ultimately gives us hope and comfort. For you see, this is the only way in which anyone anywhere ever in the history of the world could ever be saved if the Son of God took on human flesh. You understand, of course, as we've seen before, that we are born sinners. We don't We don't need the Word of God even to teach us that. We just need to observe our children as they grow and develop. We just need to study the world around us. We've seen that as well. The world daily convicts us that sin is deep within our beings, bred within our bones, that we are conceived and born in sin. Well, sin, you understand, demands justice. It demands redress. We understand that on a social level, if we live with neighbors, coworkers, people in our community that are constantly stealing, constantly acting in a way that does harm to others, maybe even killing or raping people within the culture, what do we want the culture to do with those people? Surely we want them to be treated with justice. We want them to come before the judge, brought through the policing services to take the punishment that is due for their act. A society cannot exist apart from justice. And salvation is impossible without justice because God is a God of justice. God is a God who is true to Himself. He is righteous in all that He does. And God's justice demands that our sin, which is an affront to His eternal majesty, be punished with eternal death. Not just death, you understand. We have so biologized death that death is this event, this moment in time. But death is a punishment, and it is a punishment of permanence, an eternal punishment. And God said to man in the beginning, when you eat of the tree, the day you eat of it, you will surely die. The punishment for sin is death. The wages of sin, as the apostle says, is death. 
Which means that for every sin we commit, as minor as we might find them to be, the judgment of God is death. And can you pay that penalty? Can you enter into that that course? You know how how prisoners are, are eventually taken away and then maybe after 20, 25, who knows, 30 years, their time is done and they come out and then we say things like, well, they've paid their debt to society. Can you pay your debt to God in the same way? Is there a day when you could leave the prison house of sin and say, God, I have suffered enough to pay for my sin? The answer is no. For the wrath of God is eternal. And that eternal wrath never ends, and therefore there is never a day when we get out for good behavior, that we get out and go on probation, that we can get out and say, but my time here is done. If we enter into the clutches of death itself, if we enter through the gates of hell, then we will never escape. For we cannot finish bearing its weight. We cannot finish drinking the cup of God's wrath. It is a cup of eternal depth. No matter how much you drink, an eternal amount remains. So our sin demands death. Death is eternal. And eternity is something we cannot pay. But do you know who can? Well, surely God can. The eternal God. You see, that's why it is only God ultimately who can provide redemption, who can satisfy the justice that He demands for our sins. It is only God who can take that cup of wrath and empty it for us. But it is not enough for God to do it. You understand that it is not enough for the Son of God simply to say to His Father, tell you what, I will take the judgment that they deserve. No, the principle of justice remains that the one who sinned must die. Humanity has sinned, therefore humanity must pay the price. God will not accept the sacrifice of another, not a bull, not a goat, not anyone else. Not no other creature in all of the universe is enough to bear the weight of the sin of man. God, the Son of God alone, is strong enough to bear it, is able to drink it, but it must be a man who consumes it. It must be a man who bears it up. And now you understand that it is only possible for salvation to come by one who is truly God, able to bear up under the wrath of God, and truly man, able to stand in our place as a genuine human. And that is why Jesus came in the flesh. That is why Paul can say, that he did not, equate, or did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. And being found in human form, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. It is not simply to amaze us, not simply to inspire us and to say to us, anything is possible. No, Jesus came in the flesh because this was the only way. He had to die, you understand, on the cross. Think of that tree from which the wood of the cross was made. You think about how Jesus gave to that tree life. Long before He was conceived, that tree was planted in the ground. That tree began to grow. The sun and the rain. The Father was nourishing that tree so that it would be the tree upon which Jesus died. 
Jesus didn't die accidentally. Jesus didn't die because of some conspiracy, because of some, because of some betrayal by Judas. Jesus died because he came in the flesh to nail it to the cross, that he might bear the weight of our wrath, and that he might save us from our sins. And now just for a moment, let that thought so percolate deep within your heart that it manages to meet the guilt and the shame that lies so often deep, deep down in the recesses of who we are. We all struggle with shame. We all struggle with guilt. There are things we do not tell or want to tell anyone about who we are. Thoughts, actions, deeds. But what happens, you understand, is that shame and guilt becomes like a, like a gnawing poison within our lives, causing us to, to stumble, to, to, to limp, to be weak, and so often producing within our hearts a sense of fear, a sense of unworthiness. And the devil's very good, you understand, very good at making us aware of our sins, of putting us down, and then of promising ways for us to solve that problem. Oh, oh, your heart is weighed down by your guilt. Well, you know what you should do is stop going to church. You understand it's the church constantly talking about your sin. It's the church's fault that you feel so low. Go away from church. And if you're unwilling to go away from church, fine. Then polish yourself up. Then then show yourself to be your best version of you. Then then don't let anybody see the truth. Put on your fig leaves and try to cover your sin. Well, the devil's very good at keeping us from doing the one thing that we must. is to turn to see the Son of God in the flesh the person of our Savior with His two natures, perfectly set to bear for us the sin that we have borne. The devil wants us to turn away from our Savior, to turn to ourselves, to see our failures, to see how little we can bear, to see our own foolishness, and to draw the necessary conclusions. Who would love you? Who would save you? Who would forgive you? And who can carry the burden of such grief for so long a time? Not the wounds, of course. Not the wounds, you understand. In this life, until the Lord returns or we are called home, we will bear the wounds of our foolishness every day. Well, there's coming a day, thanks be to the Lord, when He will restore us and when those scars that we have brought upon our souls and even upon our bodies will be healed and He will wipe away every tear that we have wept in the way of grief. For He knows that we too easily take fire into our laps and then complain about the burns. And sometimes we struggle with the fact that we have to carry these scars. Sometimes we think, that the forgiveness of sin should not only alleviate from us the guilt and the power of sin, but also all of the consequences of sin. That sometimes scars remain to remind us not only of the grace of God, but of the danger of playing with fire. And yet the truth of the gospel is that we cannot do anything to address the deep, deep problem of our sinfulness, but beyond measure, beyond eyes, any eye that has seen, any ear that has heard, any mind that has conceived, God has done the impossible because Jesus has come in the flesh. And the Father has addressed the judgment that stands against us 
perfectly in the gift of His Son. He's the perfect Savior who perfectly bears the weight of your sin and perfectly redeems you from its grief and perfectly delivers you from its power. That's what ought to inspire. That's what ought to encourage. That's what ought to amaze us. Even though it is a most powerful blow to all of our pride. To need such a Savior, you understand. Not to want such a Savior. Not to find Him mildly attractive. Not to think there's probably something good about Him. To need this Savior. To need Him that our lives are utterly utterly lost except by this mind-numbing, this amazing, beyond our ability to comprehend love. To say, I cannot exist apart from that grace and goodness in Jesus Christ says something ultimately about our depravity and our ignorance and our rebelliousness. That is to say, to lay hold of this Jesus, this one person, two natures, means you must let go of yourself so that you can lay hold of Him and cling to Him with a tenacious faith that refuses to let go so great a God and glorious a Savior. And we have a hard time doing that because ultimately we're the only people we trust. You see, when we stop for a moment and see such glory of Jesus Christ, and we begin to think, well, maybe, just maybe, I should let go of my pride. Just maybe I should stop trying to justify myself. Maybe I should stop trying to pretend that I have it all together. Maybe I should stand before the company of God's people and say, you know what? I'm a sinner, but He is a Savior of such worth and wonder that my life is completely secure in Him. Praise the Lord. Because ultimately, you understand, that's what good theology does. See, the devil knows what he's doing. He knows that careful thought about such things as this, the two natures of Jesus, the one person of our Lord, if he can get you to think that it's nothing but angels dancing on the head of a pin, then you're never going to stop and say, Behold my God. How great and glorious a Savior. How worthy of my life is this King. I offer my heart promptly and sincerely to Him. But when you stop for a minute and gaze upon the beauty of your majestic Lord, when you listen carefully to what the Bible teaches and get it right, listening carefully to its theological revelation you discover that your heart is filled with a peace that passes understanding. Even as you realize that to get it wrong, to reject this Savior, to despise this Lord, is to leave us in our sin under the weight of our grief, broken and alone. It matters, you see, in the end. Our church fathers, when they fought for these precious truths, fought for our souls so that we might know that comfort of the gospel and might enter into the glory of our God with mouths of praise and hearts filled with wonder. This is what the Lord would have us see. And this is what He would have us believe that our hearts may be offered to Him in praise. Let's come before Him in prayer to do just that. Shall we pray? Gracious God and Heavenly Father, it is truly a mystery that You have revealed to us again in Your Word. 
that the Son of God should take on flesh? One person, two natures? A testimony, a confession fought bitterly throughout the history of the church and maintained, defended, and promoted? Lord, it's beyond our ability to truly comprehend. But as we gaze upon this glorious revelation, and the more we see it, the more we understand its many dimensions, its beauty, and its wonder, our hearts become comforted, encouraged, confident. Yes, even our hearts, Lord, who are miserable sinners, who the world thinks are supposed to be so much better because we call ourselves Christians and we know that we're supposed to be so much better inspired by the Holy Spirit, but who find ourselves more often than not stumbling and faltering and failing and so are embarrassed and ashamed. And even though we come to church, Lord, in our Sunday best so that others may even think that we've got it all together to hear again this glorious good news of the one person, two natures of Jesus Christ. That our Savior, our Messiah, is so perfectly suited to be our Messiah that we need never doubt. That we might ever be assured that we might rest unreservedly in His sovereign grace is for us, Lord, a gift beyond compare. And may it encourage our hearts each and every one of us here today. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.